1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is God's holy word. Listen to it. Give your careful attention to it. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning having been engaged throughout the week previous in all manner of cultural activities. We've heard the words of men day in and day out on the news, on the radio, on the television, social media. We hear a lot of what men have to say. We now have the privilege of sitting before your word. And may we hear that word. May it refresh us. May it give us true perspective and understanding of ourselves, of this world, of our calling toward one another in the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is a long chapter filled with intricate and complex argumentation. I say this up front so that you will be prepared. (laughs) And I implore you, especially if you know that you have a tendency to drift or difficulty in maintaining attention, I implore you to follow along as best as you are able this morning. Now, of course, this is something you should always endeavor to do every time the word of God is being set before you. But I promise you this morning it's going to be all the more necessary because, after all, we're dealing with the Apostle Paul. And even Peter said he can be hard. With that said, let me put before you For the sake of clarity, let me put before you this morning the main point that Paul is making, that which he is calling us to understand and practice. That main point is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ has granted to believers liberty, freedom, truly inalienable rights. But this liberty, this freedom, and these rights are not given as an end in themselves. As such, 
There will be times in the Christian life when we, for the sake of the gospel, will set our freedoms and our rights aside. Times when we willingly do not exercise our freedoms or assert our rights, but instead set them aside and become the servants of others for the sake of the gospel and its everlasting reward. That's the main point. As he sets this point before us, Paul places himself before us as example exhibit A. Case in point. Look at me. Whatever beef the Christians in Corinth may have had with Paul, whatever his opponents might have been saying about him, whatever in their eyes disqualified him from being a real apostle, whatever it was, it rested in their not truly grasping the gospel itself. A gospel which Paul not only preached, Diligently, faithfully, but by God's grace, a gospel which Paul exhibited in his own life. You see, that which offended people about Paul was not actually Paul, but the cross of Jesus Christ, which they saw written large all over Paul's life. So in this chapter, Paul says it himself, he is defending himself against the things that are being said about him, assumptions that are being made about him, charges that are being made against him by some. He is defending himself, but if you listen carefully to him, you will see, you will understand that he's not defending himself for the purpose only of defending himself. He's not defending himself so that he might be vindicated, but so that the church might better understand the gospel itself and their own calling in that gospel as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are called to live by the wisdom of the cross and not by the wisdom of the world. Now again, to try to make things as clear as possible, as we work through this chapter, I'm going to arrange this sermon in a, in a certain way. Three parts. But I'm going to begin the sermon by looking at those illustrations which Paul uses at the very end of the chapter. The ones that he draws from the world of competitive sports. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just me. I like that stuff. I don't know. But I'm going to start there. Verses 24 through 27. So we'll start there, and that will be the first of three parts of the sermon. The second part of this, in, in this sermon will deal with verses 1 through 14 and Paul's justified claims, his rights that he mentions. And then the third and last section of this sermon, we will deal with the middle and really the heart of this chapter, verses 15 through 23. 
Now I'm going to begin with the end of the chapter because I think these illustrations really bring to light the main thrust of Paul's argument in this chapter. So let's consider those closing verses. Paul wrote, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Two things stand out in the illustrations that Paul uses here. First, athletes compete not for nothing, but for a prize. That's one of the things you should take away. Athletes do what they do for the prize set before them. And the second part of that is, in order to obtain that prize, in order to reach the goal, in order to win, in order to become the champion, the athlete has to exercise a great deal of self-control and self-discipline. Paul uses the example of a runner and the example of a boxer. Now remember, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And Corinth is a Greek city, a city which I mentioned in the first sermon, in the introduction, was second only to Athens in terms of hosting Athletic games, great spectacles like the Olympics. So Paul is drawing from their own culture, as it were, to speak to them. And yet at the same time, his illustration is so common in every culture that we can all get the point he's making. He wants us to think of the Christian life as being like a competitive athlete. Christian life is analogous to being a competitive athlete. The runner runs to win, to gain the wreath of honor, the medal of recognition, a reward that recognizes their skill and dedication. Remember, in these athletic competitions, well, prizes are not given out to everyone. At least they didn't used to be. Now, I could run in a marathon if I wanted to. Sure, it would likely take me several days to arrive at the finish line, long after all the prizes have been handed out and everyone else had gone home. But I could do it if I wanted to. But that's not the mindset of a competitive runner. I could do it. Why not? No, They run to win. They want to get the best time. They want the prize. They want to be the first one to cross that ribbon, that line. What does it take to get there? In order to gain that prize, in order to have the winning time, they have to subject themselves to a lifestyle that I would find most unappealing. That's something I I could not, do not want to do. 
They would have to exercise great self-control in what they eat and drink. They would have to impose upon themselves a degree of self-discipline that I would not be willing to endure. They would go to bed early, and they would rise early. They would run every single day. They would endure all kinds of pains and aches all the time. They would not spend a lot of time hanging out with their friends. Their whole lives would be conditioned in such a way to serve the end of winning the race. Paul says that the Christian life needs to be like this. He uses as well the example of a boxer. Now, no one boxes so that they might get knocked out. That's that's not why you step into the ring. It's not your hope in the match. When two pugilists step into the ring, each does so with the intent of beating the other and winning. Winning the bout. The life of a boxer, no less than that of a runner, perhaps even more so in some ways because of the dangers involved in their sport, it has to be a life of great self-control and tremendous self-discipline. They eat a very strict diet. They also go to bed early and rise early. They run every day. They spar every day. They work constantly on their cardio. They train every day to increase their speed and accuracy and improve their technique. They're not trying to look cool when they're punching these bags or when they're doing shadow boxing. They're trying to improve their technique to a fine point of deadliness. They want to hit their opponent as many times and as hard as they can and win. And they know that this is no game and that for them to succeed, for them to win, they must condition their whole lives around boxing. Someone once asked Sugar Ray Robinson, in my opinion, the greatest boxer who ever lived, a guy who sometimes fought as many as three professional bouts in a single month. They asked him how long he trains before a fight, or how long before the fight does he begin to train for the fight? He answered, I'm always training. Muhammad Ali once said, I hated every minute of training. But I said, don't quit, suffer now, and live the rest of your life as a champion. If you fight, you fight to win. And to do so requires a life and mindset dedicated to that goal. And in the interests of that goal, one forsakes much that they might otherwise have enjoyed. The boxer, the runner, is going to walk right past the bakery. It'll be hard, but they're going to do it. That's why I can't do either. (laughs) 
Paul says the Christian life needs to be like this. That brings me to the second part of the sermon, verses 1 through 14. This opening, in the opening of this chapter, Paul asserts his rights as a Christian and as an apostle. As a Christian, he says, essentially, by way of rhetorical questions, that he has every right to eat and drink whatever he wants. That was the whole point, remember, that was being made earlier, earlier in the letter. There is no law forbidding Paul or any other Christian not to eat or to not eat or drink this or that. There is no law, no commandment of God prescribing a certain diet for Christians. That's gone. That was done with in the coming of Christ. He himself said, he declared all foods clean. Likewise, Paul went on in this section. There is nothing forbidding Paul or Barnabas or any brother or sister from getting married. Christians and apostles too are free in the Lord to marry, to walk beside a believing spouse and pursue their Christian calling together. We have this freedom in the Lord and we are perfectly within our rights if we determine to exercise this freedom. Paul then moves on to highlight his specific rights as an apostle. As an apostle, as one commissioned to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says he has every right that he should be supported and expect to be supported by those who receive and benefit from his preaching of the gospel. He makes the case here that he's actually entitled to it. He's entitled to the material support of those under his ministry. The church should feel an obligation to provide material support to those who labor in the word on their behalf. Paul points out that the Old Testament already established that right and that obligation. The ox illustration, the one who plows, the ox who plows, has a right to eat as it treads out the grain. The one who shepherds a flock has a right to partake of the milk, and so on. To muzzle the ox would be cruel and unjust. And it wouldn't be recognizing the vital role that that ox plays in your own sustenance, in your own provision. And Paul points out that God, when he revealed this to Moses, did not have oxen as his concern when he wrote that. It wasn't some general principle about how to take care of your livestock. God's concern was deeper than that. God's main concern when he said that to Moses, do not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. God's concern was for those who are stewards of the mysteries of the gospel, those who labor in the temple of God, those whose lives are bound with the altar, with the sacrifice. This is why 
the church has recognized the distinction between clergy and lay members. The clergy are those are constituted of those who whose calling and labor is entirely devoted to the temple, to the ministry of God. An apostle is a prime example of this. So the Bible teaches that those who labor in the gospel should receive their support from those who benefit from that ministry, those who are, in fact, themselves the temple of the Holy Spirit, who are being served by God's appointed ministers like Paul. Indeed, if it were not for Paul and his ministry, he says, you can hear it, the church in Corinth would not even exist. If others didn't recognize me as an apostle, well, well, you of all people should. You wouldn't even be here if it were not for me. <laughs> These saints in Corinth came to faith through the ministry of Paul and were discipled by Paul in the gospel as to what it means to live in this world as God's temple, as God's people. So Paul expresses here that he has a right as an apostle to expect support from them, material support. Far from being doubtful of his qualifications, far from being critical and opposing him at every term, at every turn, they should be taking care of him and giving thanks to God for his gospel ministry among them. But and here is the crucial point. Paul was not demanding that his rights as an apostle be recognized. Or at least that his rights be fulfilled. Paul says he's not even writing this in order for them to start providing to give him material support. Start providing him his material support for his ministry. That's not, my, that's not what I'm saying. It's not why I'm writing this. It's not why I'm telling you about the rights that I have and your obligation to serve me. It's not that you, I'm asking for you to start doing that. This was a right that Paul was not exercising, though he could have. Rather, he says, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the prize set before him, for the sake of the reward, he set that right aside. Paul does not see his freedoms and his rights as ends in themselves. So for the sake of the gospel and the everlasting reward of the gospel, Paul worked as a tent maker. That's where we get that expression. Oh, he's tent making. Paul served the church at his own expense. Though he was compelled by Christ to be an apostle, a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles, he did not want to make full use of his rights as an apostle because for Paul, a higher goal in this calling was before his eyes. And that goal was more important than the rights that he could have been partaking in. The rights themselves that were his. Paul says 
He was compelled to preach the gospel. It almost makes it sound like it was against his will, and in a way it was. I mean, he was on the road to Damascus getting ready to go have Christians arrested and killed, and Christ stopped him, and Christ took him, and he became the servant of Christ, and Christ said, now you're going to go out and be on my side. There was compulsion on Paul. He didn't have much of a choice in the matter. Christ said, you're mine, I'm sending you. So Paul was compelled to preach the gospel. And that gospel ministry came with certain rights, including the material support of those who received the benefit of that gospel. But Paul says, though that was compulsion, I am willingly, voluntarily setting aside those rights for the gospel, for your sake. I'm setting aside my rights as an apostle so that I might have something that I can boast in. That I might have a reward, a true reward, a goal, a prize. And I want to exemplify that mindset to you. I want you to understand why I'm setting my rights aside. There's a bigger thing going on here than the rights. As one commentator put it, the whole reason for the argument is to assert that his giving up of these rights does not mean that he's not entitled to them. In a day like ours, such rights usually mean a salary and benefits. On the other hand, the reason Paul feels compelled to make this kind of defense is that he has given up these rights. Contemporary Protestant ministers seldom feel compelled so to argue. (laughs) The key to everything must be for us what it was for Paul. No hindrance to the gospel. For every valid ministry in the church of Jesus Christ, this must be the bottom line. All too often, one fears the objective of this text is lost in concerns over rights that reflect bald professionalism rather than a concern for the gospel itself. Often this chapter is used just to preach to congregations that they have an obligation to support their minister. And it stops there. It's not that that's not true, but it doesn't stop there. And you're missing Paul's deeper point if you stop there. This brings us to the third and final section of his sermon, the heart of the chapter, verses 15 through 23. Paul does not make full use of his freedoms or rights for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of those who are hearing that gospel, the sake of the church to whom he's ministering. At the heart of that gospel that Paul proclaimed was not rights or freedoms, but as we saw last week, Self-sacrificial love. The setting aside of rights and freedoms for the sake of others. This is at the heart of the gospel itself. Now, let's, let's bring it all together. This, this middle section really does. Was Paul free to eat and drink whatever he wanted? Indeed. 
Was Paul free to take a believing wife along with him on his missionary journeys? Absolutely. Did Paul have a right as an apostle to expect material support from those congregations that he planted and ministered to? Without a doubt. So why on earth would he forego those freedoms and rights? To be sure, Paul had no earthly reason to do so. But earthly reasons were not ultimate for Paul. Paul had the kingdom of God before his eyes. He had the goal, the prize before his eyes. More important and far more rewarding than eating and drinking or being married or being financially supported is the kingdom of and gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was for and to this end that Paul strove. And Paul exercised a great deal of self-control and self-discipline as he made his way to that goal. Not unlike that of a runner or a boxer. He exercised a great deal of self-control and self-discipline in order to win, as he says, in order to win many for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. Think about it this way. What I eat or drink or my freedoms to eat and drink whatever I want to is not nearly as important as the fact that Christ is setting a table in his kingdom for many, for Jews and Gentiles. Those sitting with me at that table in the kingdom of heaven are far more important than the food I am eating or the drink I am drinking right now. Seeing more sit at the table of Jesus Christ was for Paul a greater prize to be striven after than the temporary exercise of his earthly rights and freedoms. Paul has his eye on the prize. Paul has his eye on the kingdom of heaven, on that which is everlasting, you see. Paul is laboring in the gospel, not for an earthly reward, not even for the rights and benefits and privileges that come with it, but for a kingdom that will endure forever. Paul wants to win. And more than that, as he understands the gospel, he has to fight He has to run so that you will win too. He wants to see you sitting at the table with him in the kingdom. For your sake. For your sake, he's saying. I either ate or I didn't eat. For your sake, he's saying. I decided not to get married. For your sake. He didn't insist on his rights because he didn't want anything to hinder the gospel. 
He didn't want anything to become an obstacle or a hindrance to others having a relationship with Christ, others coming into the kingdom of Christ with him. Paul would rather die, he says, than to have this boast removed that he willingly, not by compulsion, but voluntarily denied himself, disciplined himself, controlled himself, set aside his freedoms and rights for others. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the gospel. In other words, he did it because he loved Christ and loved those whom he called to Christ in the gospel more than all of his rights, more than all of his freedoms, more even than his own life. Where do you think he gets this? Well, let me read something. Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But here comes the reward. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See what he did? Setting aside his glory? Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. How did the Son come? Asserting his rights? Now it says, born of a woman born under the law, and why? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is why Paul will later exhort in Galatians, he'll, he'll say to the church there, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Now, let's bring this home. Are you free? Does the gospel afford you wonderful freedoms, liberty? Absolutely. Do you have rights as sons and daughters of God? Indeed you do. But, it is precisely that fact that makes your setting aside those freedoms and rights and becoming the servant, the slave of others for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. It's precisely that that makes it all so meaningful, so Christ-like when you set those things aside for others. So Paul goes into it. When I was ministering among the Jews, guess what I did? 
I ate kosher. For their sake. I didn't have to. I could have eaten anything I wanted. That was my freedom in the gospel. But for their sake, so as to put no cause of stumbling at all, I ate kosher. And when Paul was ministering among the Gentiles, guess what? He ate pork and octopus and whatever else the Gentiles were eating. For their sake. When Paul was among the Jews, he would conform in a way to their culture, even to some of their traditions. Not because he had to. He could have asserted his rights and freedoms. No, I'm not going to do that. He did it. Not as one obligated to do so because he was under the Mosaic law, because he wasn't. But because his freedom in Christ from those obligations allowed him to voluntarily do so. Voluntarily, freely do so. When he was ministering among the Gentiles, those he speaks of here is without the law, he would follow their customs and some of their traditions insofar as those weren't contrary to the law of Christ. And he did so so as not to, to offend, so that he might win as many as he could to Christ, have an opportunity to bring the gospel into their lives. Because more than anything else, he just wanted to sit beside these Gentiles at the table in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're asking, well, why did he get on Peter's case? And Peter started doing what the Jews were doing and so forth. When he rebuked Peter to his face, remember, in Galatians? Well, Paul did not do the things that he's doing in terms of eating what they eat, conforming to some of their cultures and traditions and so forth. He didn't do these things out of the same motive as Peter at the time. Peter did so, we're told, out of the fear of men. Peter set aside his freedoms because he was afraid of the Jews. Paul does so out of the fear of the Lord, out of love for Jew and Gentile, and is out of a desire to win the prize, to gain the reward, to win more for the gospel, and to be found faithful before God. And now understand, this passage, I became all things to all men that I might win some, has been misused. It's been terribly misused by some. So let me just make it very clear. Paul never changed the gospel itself in order to suit it to his hearers. Rather, he lived out of that gospel before the world. If anyone, Paul says elsewhere, if anyone preached another gospel than the one he received and delivered to them, Paul pronounced them accursed. Paul did not compromise his theology one bit. But in terms of how that gospel is embodied in his own life, Paul knew that the gospel allowed him the greatest flexibility such that he could become all things to all men so that he might share with them in the true blessings of the gospel. 
Now, do you see the implications of this for your own life? Is it coming home? What is your ultimate goal? What are you running for? What are you competing for? How will you exercise your freedoms and rights given you in the gospel? Are you willing, for the sake of that prize, that reward, that final goal, to set aside your rights and freedoms, if need be, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others who know not Christ, or for those who are in Christ but are weak in faith? If only this passage, this message, had been on the hearts of Christians during the last few years, much damage could have been avoided. Much strife and disunity resolved, and a far better and more faithful witness to a dying world could have been offered by the church. Do you see? Do you see that? Do you understand? Let us take a cue from the Apostle Paul, who took his cue from Christ. And putting aside our rights, or putting our rights and freedoms in their proper place, let's run the race set before us and fight the good fight of faith, seeking to win, seeking to bring others with us, to that everlasting reward. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us by your spirit to exercise self-control and self-discipline. Not only when it comes to matters that are sinful, that are forbidden, that we are commanded not to do or are commanded to do, But, Father, also exercise self-control and self-discipline, even in regard to how we use and exercise the rights and freedoms that are ours in the gospel. Help us to have Christ before our eyes, that one who set aside his rights and became a servant to all, that he might win all. Help us to set the kingdom of heaven before our eyes, where our ultimate goal and aim is to voluntarily, with all of our hearts, love you and those whom you love and see them in your kingdom, at your table, with us, all of us benefiting and partaking together of the glories of salvation. Help us run the race, Lord God, with discipline. Help us live a faithful Christian life before the world. Help us become all things to all men without compromising the gospel itself, but because of the gospel, becoming all things to all men for the sake of that gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.